So, uh, the title of my message today is That You Be United, That You Be United, from verses 10 through 17. And I want to get right into it here, so no fancy introductions here this morning. Uh, There's a lot to get through, but uh, just let me simply say that after giving his opening in in the first nine verses, which we've looked at the last couple of weeks, which were very positive, Christ exalting, we saw Jesus mentioned nine times in those nine verses, now Paul sets a little bit more of a serious tone, and he introduces the first subject of concern that he has for these dear friends of his in the church at Corinth. So three points today, if you're taking notes, I always encourage you to do that uh, to uh, help you stay with us and don't drift off as we go through the sermon. But point number one, Paul makes his appeal. Paul makes his appeal, verses 10 and 11. Now, uh, this letter that Paul has written here to a church, um, it's written to a church which has asked him a lot of questions, but he doesn't start answering their questions until we get to chapter 7. Chapter 7 begins like this, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So we know the church at Corinth had written Paul some questions, but he doesn't get to it until chapter 7. So he's got some things to say. First, before he gets to their questions, it's kind of irritating, isn't it, sometimes when um, someone asks a person a question and then they talk all around the subject, you know, until they get to answering the question. Of course, politicians are experts at that, aren't they? Um, but, but the Apostle Paul is not being deceitful here. Uh, he, he realizes that there are other issues that, that have to be raised before he can answer the questions that they sent to him. Because they are in no condition to think through things in a Christian way uh, yet. So verse, notice verse 11. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. The word reported here meant that it was, it was made only too evident to me by the report. In other words, Paul's saying, I have no doubt that this is true. Uh, I'm sure Paul didn't listen to stupid rumors, you know, that people just threw out there. I'm sure he didn't listen to people that were always complaining about everything and everyone. But in this case, he's quite clear that the report from Chloe's people was all too true when they spoke about the quarreling in the Corinthian church. Now, you may think, well, based on those opening nine verses, that's kind of shocking to hear this. Um... This is one of the most gifted young churches in the New Testament. And now we come to find that they're full of divisiveness, quarreling. Well, if, if that kind of takes you back, I want to ask you the question, why, why does it take you back? Um, bickering and quarreling are as common as the common cold, aren't they? Uh, I mean, we all do it. Uh, And perhaps even before you left home this morning, somebody was quarreling with somebody else. Uh, Especially true of us when we're children and immature, right? Children can go from a state of peacefulness to a state of quarreling and then back to peace with amazing speed. And um, the reason the Corinthian church seems to have been so gifted at quarreling uh, might, might come from chapter 3 in verse 1 where Paul tells us that they were infants in Christ. 
infants in Christ, they do quarrel a great deal. Now, there are three phrases worth noticing back in verse 10. So let's go back to verse 10 where Paul begins his appeal. He says, first, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. His appeal is like a father to his children. It's personal. And notice the use of brothers uh, all throughout this section uh, in chapter 1 here, verse 10, verse 11, uh, down in verse 26, over in chapter 2 in verse 1, in chapter 3 in verse 1, and even in chapter 4 in verse 6. Throughout this whole opening section on dealing with division, Paul references them as brothers. Uh, So it's a personal appeal. Like a father to his children. Remember, he spent nearly 18 months establishing this church. He loves these people. And yet he also appeals through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a serious appeal too. So you know, it's like uh, you know, when your dad uh, had to sit you down and you know, across the table and kind of looks at you, you know, with that you know, half love and half angry look. You know what I mean? Uh, you know that your dad loves you, that he'd do anything for you, but you need a talking to. And that's what Paul is about to do to the church at Corinth. And he, he doesn't say here, I want you to be at unity with one another. He, this is not just about getting along. He's saying, I want you to be at unity with something. I want you to agree on something. And of course, he's referencing the truth the truth that, had, that he had passed down to them. You know, it's kind of like um, in, if you think of a, in a church, you think of a, a praise team or a choir when we're, we're trying to keep in sync with the music. The, the truth that is God's word is like the music. And we keep our eyes on the conductor or the song leader, and that's Jesus Christ. That's how we all stay together is by focusing on what we agree on, on the body of truth that's been passed down to us. So he's telling them he wants them to agree. Agree with this truth that he's brought to them when he's founded the church in Corinth. And then he goes on to say that there be no divisions among you. And the Greek word for, for divisions there is schismata. Schismata, schisms. It's where we get the word schisms from. And it's important to note that Although this book, the book of 1 Corinthians, is all about uh, another word that we talked about last week, charismata, charismata, which is the gifts of the Spirit, the grace gifts of the Spirit, it's also about schismata, these schismatic divisions in this church. And as most of you know, the gifts of the Spirit have actually been one of the leading causes for schisms in many churches over the last hundred years. Now, schisms normally in English refer to divisions that are external among Christians. So, in other words, we get mad about something and we leave a church and we go to another church. But here in Corinth, the word schismata refers to internal divisions, not external. In other words, all these brothers and sisters are reading this letter, and they're all in one church, 
there, there, there aren't two denominations in Corinth yet, okay? There's just one. There's just one church in Corinth. But in this one church, they, they don't have anywhere else to go, right? They the churches haven't split yet. But internally, there are great divisions. So he says, I appeal to you that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united. There's the title of the message today. And the word there for united is uh, the word that can mean mended, mended. And probably all of you have been busy at mending something this week. It's a very common word in the New Testament. Uh, The disciples mended their nets, united their nets. The doctors in the New Testament uh, used to mend bones. And uh, some of you may have been working on things like that in the healthcare industry this week. Uh, mothers used to mend garments in the Bible times, and I'm, I guess that's what happened in some of your houses perhaps this week too. Uh, and also cups and, and saucers and utensils are mended in the Bible, and I'm sure those are still mended today in places, although you may belong to a household where something breaks, you just go out and get something new. So there's the word, uh, that's what it means. He wants them to be mended in their brokenness. And because they're mended, the end of verse 10, he wants them to come to the same mind and the same judgment. Now that's an interesting uh, phrase. Uh, He wants all the Christians in the local church in Corinth to come to the same mind and the same judgment. That means that we've come to agree about Christian doctrine, Christian truths, And then we also have come to agree how it must be applied in life. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? Um, However true or not true that is in our world today, and I would suggest it's not very true in our world today, I, I, I need to say the New Testament pattern for Christians living together is that you agree on the great truths. Now, I'm, I recognize that there is a, if you want to use a medical term, there is a, a triage of sorts. I think that's a, a helpful way to look at it when it comes to the teachings of the Bible. There are first order items in the Bible, such as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have to agree on those levels, or else you're not a follower of Jesus. You have to agree on those orders of first importance, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, for example. Then there are items of secondary importance, which might be more uh, what we think of as denominational um, issues. So where we all, as Baptists, might agree a certain way when it comes to, well, let's take baptism, for example, right? There are other denominations and churches that have a different view of baptism. Now, that difference of how we view baptism does not affect our salvation. It's not a primary level of importance, right? But does it affect us worshiping together in the same church? It it very well might. It may be the reason why we are separated from one another in different kinds of churches. And then there's third order levels of things, which I would call preferences or opinions. Uh, Romans chapter 14 tells us how to deal with those kinds 
of issues, things that the Bible doesn't necessarily say are right or wrong, and there are lots of them, and uh, those are issues on which we don't have to be in agreement on, but yet we should love one another even with our disagreements, right? So I understand that there is, there is a triage, there is kind of a, a hierarchy um, of te- when it comes to the teachings of the Scripture. However, um, we can't live together and we can't work together, Paul is saying, unless we agree together and certainly agree on the most important things, which, is, is, which he's going to be talking about uh, here together. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why the Sunday morning sermon is such an important part of the local church. It's not because I have done all this work to prepare something for you and you must accept it and be in awe of it. No, not at all. But the reason why the Sunday morning sermon is such an important time is because it's the only time in our week that we have set aside to all learn together. Now, we do this in small groups. There are Bible studies, there are prayer meetings. That's all good. But the only time we all get together to learn together is this moment each week. And that's why it's such an important time. That's why we can never just give a quick little five-minute five sermonette or, or, or just get up here and tell feel-good stories and make you all laugh and cry and, and, and go out here laughing and crying. You know. A church must have a foundation, and that foundation must be built on truth. And we must agree on truth. So that's Paul's appeal to you today. It's not just an appeal to the Corinthians. We're not reading something that's antiquated for another day, another time. Paul's appeal as an apostle of Jesus Christ to you today in 2022 as members of Heather Hills Baptist Church is that you must come to the same mind and the same judgment with regard to the important truths of the primary truths of the gospel. Let's look secondly, um, not only at... uh, First of all, here Paul's um, uh, his uh, responding to this um, and his appeal to this um, quarreling problem. But notice in verses twelve and thirteen, Paul Paul's reaction. How how does he how is he going to react to this reporting that he's gotten from Chloe's people? Look at verse twelve. He says, "What I mean." is that each one of you says, and he goes on, we'll talk about this in a second, but, but let's just think just for a minute. You know, we oftentimes will say, I mean, um, in a conversation because we're conscious that we don't make ourselves clear. So I might say something and then say, now what I mean is, and then I'll go on and try to clarify that. And Paul is doing the same thing. He wants to make himself abundantly plain about these reports that have come to him. So here's what he says. What I am talking about is in, in this division and this divisiveness, when each of you is saying, I follow somebody. So look what he says in the text here. This is what they're saying. I follow Paul, says one group. I follow Apollos, says another group, verse 12. 
another group says, I follow Kephas, which is the Aramaic word for Peter. And then I follow Christ, says even another group. So this tremendously gifted church in Corinth, the middle of pagan Corinth, idol-worshiping, immoral Corinth, this vitally important church, because, by the way, this is the springboard for evangelism into Europe. This is an important church in an important place. When they meet on the Lord's Day, when they meet on Sunday morning, this church is full of partisanship. This church is full of tension. You can feel it. And when they get together to drink coffee afterwards, it's quite clear they're forming into little cliques. There's a lot of muttering going on. Some people are always talking to the same little group. And when they come together for the church membership meeting, there's a great deal of tension because people are going in all different directions. What's happening? Well, this is all very, very natural, isn't it? It doesn't sound that foreign to any of us, does it? Because sometimes we'll look back at, at people like this in the Bible and we'll say, oh, these people are horrible. But the truth is, it's the most natural thing in the world, isn't it? For us to form little, little groups. Paul. Some follow Paul. Well, of course some people follow Paul. He was the founder of the church, wasn't he? he he'd come in, we think, the fall of, of A.D. 50. He'd come to this pagan center. He, he'd had a great triumph. Do you remember what we read in Acts chapter 18 at the beginning of this study? How he went into Corinth and he went into the synagogue. Uh, he found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And they were of the same trade. They were tent makers. They started working together. Paul went into the synagogue every Sabbath. He's trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, Acts 18.4 they were persuaded. This was informative teaching evangelism. And then Silas and Timothy arrive in verse 5 of Acts 18. Paul's occupied with the Word. He's testifying to the Jews that Christ, the Christ is Jesus. You know, Priscilla and Aquila probably having to do a lot more tent making because, you know, Paul's ministry is taken off here. Um, and then people re- opposed him and reviled them. Uh, he said, okay, fooey on you. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he sets up shop in the house right next door to the synagogue. You remember that? In the house of a man named Titius Justice, who was a worshiper of God. All very embarrassing. He goes out of the synagogue, but then this moves in next door. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believes in Jesus, moves over next door. Together with his entire household, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. What a marvelous story. What a marvelous testimony of God's grace in this place of paganism. Only in one other church did Paul stay longer. Uh, Anybody know which one it was? Ephesus, I heard. Yeah, that's right. But this church was greatly privileged. Just imagine having the Apostle Paul staying with you for 18 months 
learning the faith from his own lips. So naturally, there were some Christians who were first converted when he came who said, well, I follow Paul. He's our leader. The very fact, by the way, that they would talk like that shows that there were others who felt differently. Secondly, Apollos. Some follow Apollos. Apollos had come a little bit later when Paul had left Corinth, and he had been a mighty preacher. Very eloquent. In fact, that's the word that describes him in Acts chapter 18. And the Apostle Paul was a poor speaker. Very unimpressive to look at, by the way. Everybody wanted Apollos to come to their church. He was striking. He was the popular speaker. Well, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6 that there was no rivalry between Paul and Apollos. They worked together. They, they loved each other. But their followers were not of the same mind. Then there's Kephas. Well, that's pretty easy to describe too, isn't it? Because Kephas, of course, was an older Christian. He had been the leader of the 12 disciples. He'd lived with Jesus in the flesh. He had lived in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the conservative center of Judaism. Peter liked getting things done in the old way. He didn't like change. And so, although Peter and Paul got along pretty well after an initial agreement that they had, disagreement that they had, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15, you can read about. But they got along, but there were people in this church here in Corinth, maybe some people who had relatives in Jerusalem especially, who said the trouble with Paul and Apollos is, you know, they're, they're always changing everything. We like to do it the old-fashioned way. If you want to know what real Christians are like, you need to take a, take a trip to Jerusalem. So anyway, and I'm just speculating about that. But there are three groups here who very naturally associate themselves with these three very great men, Paul, Apollos, and Peter. And then there was a fourth group who say, well, we follow Jesus. Don't you love those people? You know, there's always those. This, is, this happened zillions of times in church history. Somebody starts a church, and their church is to be a protest against all the other denominations that are already out there. But it turns out that they're just starting another denomination themselves. And our country is littered with all kinds of churches like this and, and house churches like this too. There's, that's a growing fed. Who say, we follow Jesus. Not like all these other groups out there. Not like those Baptists down the road. We follow Jesus. We're starting over again. We're the people who have gone back to the beginning we're the people that Jesus is pleased with. It's a very natural thing, isn't it? It's a very natural thing. There's always a preference for those people who have led us to Christ or who have been instrumental in our lives, who have mentored us in some way, to be extremely loyal to them and loving and follow them. If Apollos had led you to Christ, wouldn't you have been inclined to be on his side? Well, what does Paul have to say to this? How does he react to it? Look at verse 13. 
he reacts very bluntly. He asks three questions. Now, I won't go into these in great detail, but you can see how powerful they are. Question number one, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? In other words, has Christ been given to some and not others? Was Paul crucified for you? That's a vivid way of putting it, isn't it? Was it Paul on the cross? Corinthians? You seem to think I'm your Savior. I'm just your teacher. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course you weren't. You were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Your allegiance should be only to Him. There's a, there is a sense, right, in which Christian ministers are not insignificant. Christian ministers bring the gospel to people. But congregations must never put Christian ministers in a position that falsely exalts them. Christ is our head. Not any personality. As charismatic, as eloquent, as powerful as they may seem to be. So what Paul is saying here is, get us in perspective, church. You are not followers of men. You are followers of God in Jesus Christ. Now that leads him to the third thing I think he wants to point to us, and it's the most important thing of all, I think, in the text. And it's a proper understanding of his calling, his priority as a minister of Christ. So look in verses 14 to 17. And thirdly here, Paul asserts his priority. Paul asserts his priority. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Don't you love that? <laughs> yeah, he's, Paul, you know, he's, he's like dictating his letter and you know, his memories are like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> there was that one other guy. You know? um, beyond that, he says, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. He's conscious he's getting older. You know? There may be others, they've slipped his mind. But he gives a marvelous summary here uh, in verse 17 with, with two negatives that we want to look at here in the rest of our time. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's the first negative. He did not send me to, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. The second negative. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So let's look at these two negatives here uh, for a moment. It's a great summary of this whole section. And it leads us into, by the way, the passages that are coming, coming in the weeks to come. This is a longer section, all dealing with this same topic. Now, obviously, Paul isn't putting down baptism. Uh, but he is saying that primarily... His calling, his ministry, is not a sacramental one. In other words, Paul doesn't regard himself as a priest, but as a preacher. Paul never regarded baptism and the Lord's Supper 
as being the primary importance for his ministry. Now, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Paul is belittling those two things. In fact, he spends time talking about them in this letter. But what he's saying is these are secondary to the main thing, the primary thing that God has called me to do. I am not a priest. I am a preacher. Now, what is a Christian preacher? Look at it. He's a preacher of the cross of Christ. He's a preacher of what someone else has done. And what's starting to come out of these verses, I hope you're picking this up, Paul has this huge sensitivity. He's very sensitive that people would regard him as someone who had done something for them particularly in a grace-oriented way, in a saving-oriented way. So that somebody would say all their lives, well, hey, remember, Paul baptized me. Paul baptized me. I realize you all were baptized by Gaius and Stephanus, not me. I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. And again, this is very natural. These people aren't off-the-wall crazy people. We all act this way sometimes. We all tend to follow personalities. But Paul is terribly sensitive. He didn't want anybody to think he had done something for them that brought them salvation or merited grace because that was impossible. Now, it isn't really, I mean, as much as he talks about baptism in this text, it's not really the baptism thing that is bugging him because, as you'll see from the rest of this chapter as we work through it in the, in the next couple of weeks, really what's bugging Paul is this whole area of wisdom. So let's look at the second negative, which is not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he, he says... When I came preaching, what somebody else had done, what Christ had done, cross of Christ, when I came preaching the gospel, I did not do it with eloquent wisdom. Eloquent, eloquent wisdom. Which of those two words matter here? Eloquent? Is he, take, is he taking a swipe at eloquence because he's not that good of a speaker? Obviously not. If God has given you a gift of eloquence, he may call you to be a preacher. God uses human gifts. He does. And if he was bashing eloquence, then he's bashing his friend Apollos, who is referred to and regarded as eloquent. And that would be unthinkable. He loved Apollos. He loved his gifts. Now, what he's really after here is wisdom. Not in terms of spiritual wisdom, but the wisdom of the world of his day. The wisdom of Greek philosophy. Systems of philosophical thought, which is what the Greeks loved. 
You know, Greek philosophy by this time had lost some influence in the world since the great days of Athens and its philosophers. Athens was no longer at this point the great center of Greece. It was Corinth. But still, the Greeks were a nation of geniuses when it came to this idea of wisdom, philosophy. And they remained a great nation of philosophy. And if you've ever studied anything in school, having anything to do with rhetoric or logic, sooner or later you're going to read about some Greek philosophers. They've left their mark. That's why when you took your wife out on a date back in those days, you didn't take her to the movies because there weren't any, you would take her to hear a couple of visiting philosophers speak or debate. Even today. A good debate is very interesting to listen to. When you, when you see the powers of human thought that get you beyond where you were before to help you break through to a real understanding of something, that can be a very stimulating experience. And that's what went on at Corinth in the evenings and at other times. And then at the end, of course, you would come out and look at their bookstore, you know, and say, i got to read this guy's books. He's, he really knows what he's talking about. Or this guy's scrolls. Yeah. Now, now, what is it that worried the Apostle Paul so much about wisdom? And I'll tell you, because it's a very, very important thing as we go on in this, in this uh, book uh, to consider, the coming of Christianity could be interpreted, and, and it was interpreted by many Corinthians, as the coming of the final religious philosophy. At last, somebody had broken through and was able to tell them about God in a way that they never understood it before. You know, suppose that you're someone living back at this time and you're taken with Greek mythology and and paganism, and it's never really made any sense to you. Why do we worship all these stupid idols, you know, all these very you know, stone things all over the place? You've never come to understand it in a personal way. And suddenly Paul comes along. And by his preaching, you understand who God is at last. There's a breakthrough in your understanding. And you come to love God through Jesus Christ. You can therefore put Paul into the slot of a Christian philosopher of supreme genius. This man is the only man that we've ever heard who's been able to prove to us the reality of God. Paul was terrified of that. Paul was terrified of that. He didn't see himself as some kind of philosophical genius, as some kind of worldly wise man. He didn't want people to think that he had a special, mystical understanding that breaks through into the reality of God. Because that's not the way the world comes to understand God. And Paul knew that. The world comes to understand God not through man reasoning his way up to heaven, but from God 
sending his son down from heaven to live and walk and talk among us, to die on the cross of Calvary so that we might be redeemed. And you can't imagine anything more foolish than that. Corinthians. And he's going to talk more about that in the the passages to come. But that's where we come to understand God. We'll deal with that in the next couple weeks. But we never come to understand God in a lecture room or at a debate in the philosophy hall. We come to understand God at the cross. That's where we come to understand God. Paul didn't want the Corinthians to forget that. I'll ask the praise team to come back up. We'll get ready to sing a final chorus here in a minute. Let me try to make some application as they're coming. Verse 17. What I'm being told here is what we need today is preachers, not philosophers. And what is the preacher doing? He's not proclaiming his own thoughts about God. He's proclaiming God's work in Christ for the world. He's he's claiming no right to make his own contribution. That's what the philosophers would do. They would impress you with their reasoning, their logic. The key to a preacher, in fact, according to 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, is like a steward to be faithful. What's a steward for? Simply to be faithful. If a, ma- if a master says to a steward, I want eggs and bacon for breakfast. Somebody just thought that sounded good. The steward produces eggs and bacon. If the master comes downstairs to breakfast and finds eggs and bacon and corned beef, he says to the steward, what did I ask for breakfast? Well, you asked for eggs and bacon. Well, why, why do I have corned beef on my plate as well? Well, because I wanted to make my own contribution. Listen, brothers and sisters. The preacher, according to the New Testament, is not a man with a message. It really is just a man with a voice. Think about that. That's really all he contributes. What a preacher contributes is lungs and a voice. The message must come from God who sent his son into the world to die. So, the temptation of a lot of modern ministers today who want to make a name for themselves instead of a name for Christ is oftentimes to do two other things that we'll see throughout 1 Corinthians. Either to produce miracles. Look what I can do. Or to produce some kind of intellectual proof. You must come to me because I have all the secrets. And in doing so, he will foul up the whole thing. In fact, the text says, He will empty 
the cross of its power. Sobering words for Christian ministers. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you are terrified as you look around the world today and see all the conflict, the divisions, the hatred between peoples and countries. Friend, can I just tell you today that Jesus died so that you might have peace. First, peace with God. And then peace with others. He is the Prince of Peace. And you can find His true purpose for this life and the next by turning from your old way of living for yourself. Placing your full trust in Jesus and what He did for you on the cross and in rising from the dead and beginning to follow Him and His way as your Lord, your Master, your Savior. And we'd love to talk with you more about this after the service if that's something that is on your heart this morning. And you can just visit right over here in, uh, to my right, to your left, in the, the prayer room, the, the cubicle in the corner to have someone show you from the Bible how to start following Jesus. And what about the people in the pews? How can you take this message to heart today? Watch out for divisions in the church. Watch out. Most people today are not too worried about who baptized them. But maybe they find themselves rallying behind a person who complains about something else. They don't like the music. They don't like the length of the sermon. They don't like the color of the carpet. Whatever it is. Some other pet peeve. Sometimes various ministries in a church can become power bases from which people constantly put down other leaders or other ministries while exalting themselves and their own ministry. Watch out. Sometimes people try to work power plays against the pastors themselves. Issuing subtle threats and ultimatums if their desire isn't followed. Watch out. Watch out. Brothers and sisters, don't get trapped in these ways of man-centered wisdom and quarreling. And if you are, return to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because what you will find at the cross is the humility that you need in your soul to serve one another in love as Christ served you. Don't lose sight of the Gospel, Heather Hills. Don't ever let some issue, some preference, some complaint take your eyes off the Gospel off the main thing. It is far more important than whatever it is you're tempted to be quarrelsome about. Christ wants us to be one. To come to the same mind. To have the same judgment. 
There's much more to say about this subject. And guess what? Paul's going to say some more. And so we'll let him lead us through this subject in the weeks ahead. But let's conclude this morning by standing together, brothers and sisters. We'll sing this little chorus to the Lord, Make Us One, Lord. It's a prayer. Mean it from our hearts. We'll sing it through a couple of times, and then we'll close with our benediction.